All right, so tonight I want to talk about the state of the church. I want to talk about the state of the church um, that God has given me some direction for our fellowship. What are we doing? A lot of this isn't change. A lot of this is just me, after a long time, finding vision and words for what it is that we do and clarify what we do so we can do it better and bring alongside what we do some of the things that will help us to grow in the likeness of Christ rather than the likeness of culture. So God has given me three directions to prevent erosion in our lives and to ensure growth. And you can see it on the screen. These three words are soil, water, and light. So we will be in Matthew 13, if you want to find Matthew 13, first book of the New Testament. Um, But before we get there, we're going to talk about the condition of Christ's church culturally. Okay, we're going to start large. We're going to talk about the condition of the church at large culturally. Then we'll talk about his direction for this church locally. All right? So the condition of the church at large and then the direction for us as a local community. Okay? So we'll start with the condition at large, the condition of Christ's church and culture. Um, that's one word. Secularization. This is happening, yes, in society, but it's unfortunately happening in the church. And if we are not careful, we will be secularized in our faith. William Ralph Inge said this, Whoever marries the spirit of this age... Whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. In other words, the spirit of this age and what it is, is temporary. It comes, it goes. Like every fad and trend in the history of the world, we've seen empires that claim eternality. Empires rise and fall. Let alone fashion trends and interests and different cults and such. Everything comes and goes, but one thing has remained for 2,000 years. That's what we are interested in, is our faith, which has not come and gone. We do not want to marry the spirit of the age or say, let's make Christianity and the spirit of this age go together, because sooner or later we'll be widowers because the spirit of this age will die. It will pass on to something else. We want to be married to the church that Christ has passed down to his apostles from them all the way down to us for 2,000 years. We're not trying to reinvent the church. And every generation, its goal is not to reinvent the church. It's to receive the faith as it's been passed down to us and express that faith authentically in their culture and context. So we want to be careful where we are. So that's what we're going to look at. So... We're going to start with secularism in society. I, I don't, I'm probably preaching the choir. You're probably all watching this, and you bite your nails, and it's distressing. I, I really highly, here's Dr. Brandon subscribing to you. Watch less news. All right. <laughs> Let's just get to know the good news, the gospel. Um, but here you go. So this is my year of reflecting. COVID, by the way, COVID has been a tremendous evil and a curse, but in some ways, as God always does, is he, he finds a way to work good in the midst of evil. And so I've had the chance to kind of just look at culture and its pan, panic in the midst of pandemic and the way Christians have responded. And I feel like COVID is just sort of a watershed moment, which just makes very clear what's been going on for a couple decades. So I may not be saying anything new to most of you, but it, nonetheless, it's good to look at it in one sitting so secularization, what do we mean by that? I think we throw the word around. But what, it, what we just break it down to, it's the rejection of religion or God in human life and society. In, in secularization's worldview is that humanity is progressing, but religion is holding us back in the dark ages. So its goal is to either eradicate God and religion from the public square altogether— Or, if it can't do that, 
to at least ensure that people who believe in God or have a religion keep it to themselves so that the public square is free. It's secular. And you can believe in Jesus. Just right here. Keep that personal. Keep it personal. So secularism, as this wave of the spirit of the age, it it has its own pantheon of gods. Think of secularism as the chief deity. Yes, we are not too unpagan. We just don't have idols around. Well, you can even debate that. But we have a pantheon in our culture. And secularization is the chief deity. And secularization is encouraging these ten gods. There might be more. I decided on these ten because to me they're super clear in our culture. So here they are. Hedonism. Materialism. Consumerism. These are a lot of isms. Don't worry, I'll go back and define them very quickly. Consumerism. Individualism. Number five, nihilism. Number six, humanism. Seven, relativism. Eight, narcissism. Nine, pragmatism. And ten, nationalism. So what do we mean by these? So hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure as the highest good. I exist to feel happy and to feel good. So if it feels good, do it. Because the pleasure, my feelings are what drive what is right and wrong. That's hedonism. Second, materialism. Matter is the only reality. This is all over in our society. If you can't see it, touch it, smell it, taste it, it doesn't exist. You're living a fantasy. Therefore, we love to envelop our suffering, wilting spiritual lives with more material stuff so that we feel more real. This is what materialism does, and we are awash in materialism. Consumerism. That is joy, finding joy by increasing our consumption of products, experiences, and entertainment. Consumerism. America's number one favorite activity is to consume food, shopping, Netflix. That is consumerism. doesn't mean you're not allowed to do any of that. But when that becomes the means to joy, you are living in consumerism. Fourth is individualism. That is essentially self-reliance. I don't need God. I don't need others. Self-reliance is a virtue in this culture. The more I don't need you or anybody else, the more virtuous I am. That's individualism. The church has no place for that. Nihilism, I love the word. It just sounds so dark. Uh, But no one really, I didn't know what it meant until I looked it up. It means the rejection of all established authority or institutions. Nihilism means there's nothing. And so there's no structure, there's no authority. We just kind of, we figure it out. And you can see this in our culture. We're We're a culture, we don't use the word virtue anymore. Even the church doesn't celebrate the virtues. What we celebrate are values. Because values are free to the individual. Virtues require some sort of authority or institution to guide virtues. Um, Nihilism can even be seeping into the church in the way we navigate what is life, what are we supposed to look like as people. Six, humanism. That is faith in the human potential. Faith that a man or woman can become self-realized through reason alone. You only need your own resources to tap into your greatest self. Uh, seven, relativism, truth. We hear this one all the time, I think, in church, but I don't mean that we promote relativism, but we hear preachers against relativism all the time. Uh, that's that truth is subjective to an individual's experience or situation. So um, sex before marriage might be right for most people or may not be right for most people, but in my condition, I'm an exception. Or you don't understand what I'm going through. Or my lack of income, I can't support living without this person. Um, that's relativism. Narcissism. <laughs> we know this one. We see it everywhere. But sadly, we get caught up in it. It's, narcissism is just the fascination with oneself. We're in a culture now where you are the product and social media harvests us and they encourage us to sell ourselves. We are walking billboards. This is Narcissism is built into the way we promote ourselves and talk about ourselves in our culture. And then nine is pragmatism. That meaning is found in the practical consequences of something. 
Meaning is found in the practical consequences of something. So, for example, if I say, let's do away with the Bible, and let's just talk about how to counsel people therapeutically through their, their neediness, and I make that decision because we saw as a result we had 500 people in this room, that's pragmatism. I am assessing what's valuable, getting rid of the Bible, because it works. We must always be careful that we don't confuse the ends and the means and use practices to get to something that we do things that aren't Christ-like because in the end, well, more people get saved. What Christ is never okay with is us going against his character so that more people get saved. I'm just using an example because that's one the church can fall into. The pragmatism is all over. We shortcut employees' pay so that businesses can get top dollar and compete with the others. That would be a form of pragmatism. Um, and then 10, nationalism. Uh, that does not mean being a patriot. Love your country, be part of your country, be a good citizen. But nationalism is when this becomes an idol and it gives us a feeling of superiority over other nations. Um, sometimes we can even get into language that God favors us over the rest of the world. Now, I'm not denying that God has not used America, but I don't know that he wants us to be, see ourselves as better than other people. That would be nationalism. So, that's secularism's little pantheon. That's in society. How about in Christianity? Here's what we need to understand. It is in the church, but it's, it's, it's deceitful because secularism is not unbelief. Please hear this. Secularism is not unbelief. Secularism is bad belief. Secularism does not care if you believe in Jesus, just so long as your Jesus doesn't demand the renunciation of all of secularism's gods. Secularism doesn't care if Christ is present just so long as Christ isn't preeminent. So sure, let him be around, but just keep him down. The gospel is fine as long as it's good advice, but don't let it be good news. So secularism is rather bad belief. You, you, by the way, you hear that secularism isn't unbelief because actually... As secularism is rising, so is spiritualism. You notice that. Pop stars and celebrities talk about, hit TV shows on, on cable networks have spiritual gurus leading us and people talking about their spiritual life. Spiritualism and secularism are rising together. It isn't unbelief. It's just keep that privatized or keep that, well... Your God is present, but not preeminent idea. So what secularism wants is especially for Christianity, because it's the most powerful and true belief ever. Um, it wants us to hold to bad belief. So because we can't be conquered from without 2,000 years. People have literally tried to stamp out Christians by killing them systematically. It's still happening in other places of the world. We cannot be stopped so we can't be stopped on the outside, but we can be eroded on the inside. And if the devil can cause us to drain our faith of its power, then he is happy that we exist. So here are two erosive beliefs that are washing the soil in which we grow away. Two erosive beliefs. Um, it's funny, I, I, I read this in one book, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then it popped up in the next two books I read. I was like, wow, I don't know why I wasn't aware of this earlier. But there have been studies that were done. This is a famous study. Um, was uh, Christian Smith, I want to say his name is? Anyways, this is the first corrosive belief. It's moralistic therapeutic deism. How's that for a nice, sophisticated-sounding religion? I'm a moralistic, therapeutic deist. <laughs> Don't adopt that. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's rife. 
in the church. And I, I'm not necessarily thinking of specific churches when I say that. What I'm thinking of in my context is the students I teach, the high school students I teach at Lake Road Christian School. Christian kids brought up in Christian homes, and I see moralistic therapeutic deism all over their worldview and the way they speak. Here's what it looks like. There's five main tenets to moralistic therapeutic deism. First, God exists. Okay. But don't give us a God with doctrine. Don't try to flesh out who he is, how he's different from the feelings I get or the cosmic power, the divine energy. Just God exists. There's just a blanket. And so that could also mean, look, my God is, is no better than, than the Muslim God or than whatever the Buddhists worship. It's technically not a God, but just God exists. And that's a staple blanket. Just, just a God. Second, God wants us to be nice and good. This is the moralistic part. God wants us to be nice and good, which is drained to mean two things. Be nice and good. So be nice, accept everybody the way they are. That's being nice. Be good, don't be a jerk. That's what moralism is reduced to in our culture is be accepting and don't be a jerk. That's why we've lost the language of virtue and we instead hold to values. Third, God wants us to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. Ugh. I mean, he does. He does want you to be happy. And we're going to look um, in, a, in a couple weeks. We're actually going to be looking at a passage that tells us. Jesus said, happy are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. He gives us nine blesseds, which is actually also translated happy. It's, it's, it means human flourishing. If, if that's a phrase that some people overuse and misuse, but Jesus cares about us being happy, but this is not why he exists. God wants us to be happy and feel good about ourselves. So what this is used as is forget repentance, forget confession and sanctification and these Christian paths because they're hard. If he wants us to be happy and feel good about ourselves, then don't hang in there with that marriage because just because it's hard, if you're going to feel better free, then be free. Don't have commitment. Don't trap yourself to anything. Seek out what makes you happy. That's the third tenet. Fourth, God fixes our problems. He's the therapist. He's the counselor. This is what God is. God isn't someone we walk with. God isn't someone who is teaching us how to live. God is simply there on call when we run into a problem and say, help me, I am dealing with this. That's what he's reduced to. And fifth, God allows good people to go to heaven. Very, very, very common in culture. So that's moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, the second corrosive, erosive, dangerous belief infiltrating Christianity is revived Gnosticism. Revived Gnosticism. Sounds, again, pretty heady, doesn't it? What is Gnosticism? Why revived? Because there was a historic Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the first faith that Christianity contended against. It actually branched out of Christianity, and Gnosticism believed a lot of weird things. And some people believe that 1 John and some of the later books of our New Testament are actually addressing the beginnings of the Gnostic movement. It's an ancient belief. Um, it basically held to this. Three, three main beliefs. One, the world and matter are inferior. Actually, they might even be evil because they're created by a lesser God. There's a big God and a lesser God. So the world... Material is inferior. It's not the way it's supposed to be. This God sort of messed things up. Second, <laughs> we are saved through personal secret knowledge, which frees the divine spark inside us. So you got to know this secret knowledge. You got to know the tips, the tricks, the hacks, the, the mystical whatever, so that the divine spark in you is set free. Uh, third, we cannot know God, 
And so we must reject doctrines and creeds. So Gnosticism worked against church doctrine. It encouraged a moving away from the body, from material existence, and this getting in touch with the God within you. (laughs) Boy, is that setting up our current society, isn't it? It reversed the gospel. It may be another way that's helpful to think about ancient Gnosticism is the way it reversed Christian teachings in two ways. First, creation is not God's good world marred by human sin. That's what we believe. It's God's good world, but it's marred by human sin. They taught, rather, that creation is God's bad world, and it needs to be improved by human ingenuity. Uh, The incarnation is reversed. It was, we believe that God became man to save us from our sin. But ancient Gnosticism taught that man needs to become God because the God that made this world has imprisoned us in an inferior world. So we have to climb ourselves out to be with the divine. All right. Maybe you can catch some glimpses there of how that is working in our society right now. This is what Gnosticism looks like today. By the way, Gnosticism has always been a leech. It's been a parasite. Uh, So early in Christianity, it it sucked onto Christianity, and it sucked Christ out of it and left everything else. So you have this sort of like, a lot. they read the scriptures and things, but they just didn't have the power of Christ. Christ wasn't a human being. He was just this ghost that didn't even touch the, the earth. It, it, it drains it. It hollows out Christianity. Gnosticism um, is always changing because it's always finding a way to latch on to whatever society is willing to give it. And so the way Gnosticism is, is parasite today is these three beliefs. You can see how they're very consistent with the ancient. One, divinity is inside me. Divinity is inside me. Everyone's talking about getting in touch with the God within you. Or I am a God. And these self-improvement things that are about trying to get this stifled divine spark to shine. Let people see who you really are. Divinity's inside me. Second, inferiority is outside of me. Inferiority is outside of me. Which means I can't trust external authority because authority's in here. If God's in me, I have authority. I can't trust what other people are telling me because the outside world, it's mundane, it's broken. It can't be trusted. And then third, so because divinity's inside me and because the external can't be trusted, we must escape eternal, we must escape external boundaries, limitations, and the mundane world through knowledge, techniques, and stimulation to free our true selves. Yeah. So if there's a divine spark in me, I must escape the external boundaries and limits. Why do you think we have gender issues today? Because gender is a limitation, an external limitation. And the divine spark in me doesn't like this limitation. I must declare myself free of this or your sexual orientation or the great movement against organized institutional religion just to be spiritual and get in touch with God your own way, which is nothing more. It's hardly different than saying get in touch with yourself. So the divine spark must come out. By the way, um, if you watch Disney movies carefully, there, there, is a, there is an element of Gnosticism, this form of Gnosticism, in virtually every Disney movie. Not to say we should ban them, we should just watch them carefully. Because Gnosticism is not far from Christianity, it just needs to, be, it just needs to put the flesh back in it, not be hollowed out. All right, I want to read you guys two quotes from Mark Sayers, who's done a lot of really good work on this. So you better understand. And then we'll get to Matthew 13. He says this. Um, these are just too good not to read. Some Gnostics saw that the inferior God in his imperfection and possibly his malice created boundaries to keep us from escaping the world. The Gnostic then must gain secret knowledge with which to break past these boundaries Gnostic spirituality, then, is not one of obedience and faith, but rather of breaking boundaries, rejecting definitions, and transgressing limits. It seems like every other movie I see today is celebrating the hero who is breaking limits, boundaries, and traditions. Um, 
Answers are both, no, answers are to be found within. The great quest of life is to discover who you really are. Pause. Yes, Christ wants us to know our true self, the one that he has made. We have our new creation in him, right? We're looking for that outside of ourselves. We're looking for that in Christ. But what Gnosticism is doing is it's slightly tweaking this to say, just forget that part. Just find it within. So the great quest of life is to discover who you really are. That's why it's tricky, because it sounds right. To ignore what those around you say, break past the barriers and definitions and rules placed around you, and flout any external authority. To look inside, find your true self, and self-create. Self-create. Thus, the driving belief that truth is found within, that external sources of truth and authority must be refused, that our path to salvation is self-powered, overcomes Christianity not by siege, but by infiltration from within. The church is not destroyed, rather it is emptied of its essential truths, becomes a mere shadow, and eventually disappears. So here we go. What, in light of that, does biblical, faithful, historic Christianity look like? It looks like Christ not me. It looks like community, not me. It looks like challenge, the call to take up our cross, the call to lay down ourselves, the call to die, the call to be changed. That's a challenge, but it does not look like convenience. And so when church is drained of Christ, community, and challenge, it looks like it's all about us, it's all about me, and it's all about convenience. That's what we, we, we see elements of this in various places. So, all right, let's go to Matthew 13. This will set up soil, water, and light for us. So Lord, now as we look at this, it was such a long intro, I feel like I need to pray again. <laughs> Lord, as we now look at this parable, the precious words of your son, may they speak powerful truth that breaks bondage in our lives. Amen. Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples then ask him, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus says, because some people have eyes, don't want to see, have ears, but don't want to hear. Essentially, that's what he answers. And then in verse 18, he explains the parable to the disciples. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself. But endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for that was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. All right. Why does Jesus 
tell this parable. In context, we see that the Pharisees were making accusations about Jesus. If you will look just a little before at chapter 12, verse 22. 12:22, we see this. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David, their promised deliverer? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul that the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Ooh. They just said, basically, it's by the prince of the demons, the devil. Christ is doing these works. And that's when Christ then says, all manner of sins will be forgiven. But in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Did I blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? People ask sometimes, did I do the unpardonable sin? You probably didn't, unless you are attributing the power of Christ to the power of the devil. That's what the Pharisees have done. And so Jesus here now shifts. They then ask for a sign. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I'll give you this sign that I'll be in the, like Jonah in the belly of the well. I'll be in the earth for three days and I will come back. Um, he then talks about the unclean spirit that leaves a man, but then comes back with seven more unclean spirits. It's like the Pharisees. Like, in their piety, they've, they've, they've gotten rid of one demon, but because they're not filling themselves with the power of the spirit of Christ, there's going to be seven bigger batter demons that are going to fill them. And then his mother and his brothers come, say, we want to talk to you, Jesus, presumably to tell him he's crazy like they do in Mark. And then in chapter 13, it says that he leaves the house and went to the sea and the crowds pressed. He had to be on a boat and on the boat, he told them this story, this parable. Why is he telling them this parable? He's speaking in parables because seeing the Pharisees don't see, hearing the Pharisees don't hear. In other words, they see what's happening in front of them. They hear the words of Christ, and yet they're choosing not to see what they're seeing, and they're choosing not to hear what they're hearing. They're choosing to assert their opinion on it instead. So Jesus shifts to parables. He tells them in verse 13, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I'm speaking, therefore, in parables so they can stop casting their vicious demon-centered power on what I'm doing. So that those who hear, who have eyes to see and ears to hear, and are wanting to see and wanting to hear, will press in closer. Will press in and say, teach us more about what you said. This parable is coming at a moment of terrible unbelief, a terrible denial of Christ's power. And so, the parable then goes on to give us the four soils. The first seed is thrown on the pathway. The pathway is trodden by feet and has no soil. It's hard, packed earth. And so when the seed hits it, the birds come and take it. The second seed is thrown on little soil. It's rocky soil. There's some soil, but underneath there's too much rock. So when the roots could only go down so far and it shot up quick, but when times got tough, it withered away. So that's little soil. The third soil is crowded soil. The roots, I'm sorry, the seed that fell among the, the thorns. There's some soil there, but the thorns are choking it as it grows. And it can't, it can't quite receive the life of Christ because life is squeezing it out. And then fourth was the good soil that produces a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. And that's good news because um, Jesus didn't say the person who's growing in me, is going to look exactly like that person over there. There's different levels of successful growth in Christ. But we see these four soils. And what Christ is aiming at is that we would have good soil because, because good soil retains water. You throw water on the path, it rolls right off. You throw water on the rocky ground, it dries up in the sun. You throw water on the weeded, the crowded, weedy, uh, weedy soil, the weeds 
take a lot of the water from the seed. But you put water on good, rich soil, and a crop grows. And when the crop grows, when it penetrates and peeks through the earth, it can then receive the sunlight it needs to keep growing. So we, brothers and sisters, we need rich soil, we need living water, and we need pure light. This is how we are going to grow in an age where birds are snatching, the birds of bad belief are coming and taking the power of the gospel from our lives, where a shallow faith that doesn't quite understand any more than what modern society is saying, just make sure that you feel happy and that God is making you feel better about yourself. That's, that's rootless. There's no root. There's no soil there. So you'll wilt somewhere down the road. Um, materialism, consumerism, the, the mass of just constant voices coming at us, the weeds. Christ is asking his followers to allow his words, his gospel, his power, his presence to take a root in good soil. So at Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, God gave me these three images of soil, water, and light. This is what we need to grow. And it starts with soil, of course. So here's our solution. Secularism is a problem. Yes, societally and even in Christianity. But we have a solution We don't have to let it erode our faith because if we have good soil and living water and pure light, we will grow. There will be no question about it. So let's look at them. Soil, number one. Soil keeps us rooted in our historic faith. Historic faith. Soil keeps us rooted in our historic faith. I'm gathering this idea from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 and 19. It's just, uh, it's the same thought, just verse 18 makes it sound much longer. I'm just trying to get you to the point. Ephesians 3, 17. Paul prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's starting in Ephesians 3, 17. Soil keeps us rooted in historic faith. So, we want to be rooted and grounded in the Christian tradition. The Christian tradition. Um, I think there's a temptation to want to be new, to want to be novel, to look at uh, these unique expressions of the faith and say, that's it, that's what's going to help the church grow in its decline. No. Because if for 2,000 years a historic faith and Christian tradition has done well, despite greater pressure and persecution, that's what we need. The the church is being robbed of its power. We need to get back to its power. And so we want soil. We want to be rooted and grounded in the Christian tradition. Not chasing after the new, the novel, and the exciting. And flirting around. What is Paul's? This just came to me. In 1 Timothy, he says, like, don't go on with this endless genealogies and fables. Stick to the gospel. So as we do, we will discover freedom as we are formed by our faith. Gnosticism says eliminate forms, eliminate limitations, and then you will thrive. But historic, faithful, traditional Christianity says, no, our faith is given to us to form us so that we may grow. And that's what we want, is we want a faith that is forming our lives, that's instructing us. We don't trust the divine spark in us. We trust the actual uncreated light who is God guiding us from the outside. And of course, he's come into us, which is just the beautiful harmony. Oh, we'll talk about that next week. But, um, so here's a, here's a risky saying today. We reject being spiritual and not religious. That's such a common phrase. Everybody's spiritual, but I think Richard said this last week. Everyone is getting more spiritual, but none of them say it's because of Christ. Spiritual but not religious is Gnosticism. It is this getting in touch with the spiritual thing that helps the inner me do better, but not this outer structure. Now, pause. Because now I think someone is in here is probably going, yeah, but we're a relationship, not a religion. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. We are. So we, there's two extremes we can go here. 
spiritualism, which is just, I just kind of do my own thing. Religion, I just do whatever they say. Relationship is where we want to be. But relationship looks more like religion than it does like spiritualism, doesn't it? Think of a marriage. You guys aren't married because each of you say, I'm just going to do what my own divine spark wants me to do. It's a horrible marriage and it doesn't work. It requires the coming together of two parties and the formation of them. And in the same sense, religion is that which gives us form. It's calling us into a relationship through structure, through rules. Here, if it's, it's to ease perhaps your queasiness. This is what religion actually is. This is um, Rod Dreher defined this beautifully. He said, The word religion comes from the Latin word religare, meaning to bind. Now, I used to think um, that meant, I'm a prisoner. But actually, what he says makes more sense to me. From a sociological point of view, religion is a coherent system of beliefs and practices through which the community of believers know who they are and what they are to do. Does that sound like bondage? I know who I am and what I'm supposed to do. No, my life is bound together in a coherent narrative. That's freedom. These beliefs and practices are held to be rooted in... Wait... These beliefs and practices are held to be rooted in and expressive of the sacred order, both grounding and transcending existence. They tell and enact the story that holds the community together. And under that sense, Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks has always been a relational religion. We trust this is our external authority, the scriptures. And, well, that's, that's that's a good starting place. Um, <clears throat> we could grow in other ways too, which is what I, which is part of the thing that God's put on my heart. So, um, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get our hands dirty with soil? Because soil's not. I think we skip soil often in our faith because it's dirty. We don't like to get down, pack manure, pull the weeds. It's rotten work, but we need it. So how, do we, how are we going to do that? Two ways. First, soil represents discipleship. I want our fellowship to focus on discipleship. Amen. And I'm going to put him in charge of it. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know very well Matthew 28, the end of Matthew. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe what I have taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, often we use that as justifying altar calls, which is absolutely necessary and fine. But what Jesus is actually calling there for is more than just sharing your faith with somebody else. He's saying discipleship and baptism. They go together. The baptized must be discipled and the discipled must get into baptism. It's about baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means we are being, we are leaving one way of life and going into this life. There is an external authority and it's not me. It is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that, by the way, is a very specific God. That's not just the force is in me and I'm in the force or whatever the Star Wars thing says. It's, it's that the triune God, the unique God that every other religion rejects. Every religion has trouble with the Trinity. That is what we're baptized into, that God. And then discipling them to do the things that I've taught you, to observe to the things I've taught you. That is not, okay, yes, we teach from the scripture and that's helpful, but discipleship goes one step further and it trains what Jesus taught us. It trains us to do what he taught us to do. And I want discipleship where we are training each other to do the teachings of Jesus, specifically the teachings that the early church took most seriously, the Sermon on the Mount. So what does that look like? It looks like second. So discipleship, and then second way we're going to get dirty is disciplines, the spiritual disciplines. These are so neglected today, so neglected today. In fact, when I first heard about them, I was like, what are these? And I realized, oh, I do one or two of those, but there's more? Yes. Uh, Let's just start with the three big ones Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Charity. Giving of our resources, our income, our means, our gifts to others. 
Charity. Christians practice charity. They practice giving. They practice tithing. They practice sacrificing. He also talks about fasting. I can't tell you the last time I had a pastor encourage me to fast. Or maybe better, yeah, I've heard it occasionally, like, we should fast. I can't tell you the last time a pastor taught me how to fast. But we want to do this. We want to learn to be charitable. We want to learn how to fast. So this is soil. We're going to get our hands dirty and learn how to do this. Optionally, optionally, but I would invite everyone to get their hands dirty with me. And third, Jesus teaches prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we pray in our service a lot. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But prayer has been, since we started the Psalms, it's become such a big part of my life. I can't tell you how much preaching the Psalms has changed me. I hear from a lot of you how much the Psalms are very helpful during the COVID season. Not that we're out of it, but um, yes, the Psalms, prayer is going to continue. We have our prayer school on Wednesday nights. Prayer is going to be such an important part of forming us. Why? Because prayer often is used as self-expression. Hi, God, it's me. This is what I'm feeling. But prayer really needs to be God forming us. That's what prayer is about, is us coming to him and letting him form us. That's part of soil. Okay, so that's soil. So um, the second is water. What is water? Water is this. It's what you and I have known the whole time you've been part of this fellowship. We come together at 5 o'clock. And we water. We call it worship. Um, that's what water is representing, okay? Water is going to look like this. Water refreshes and nourishes us as we gather to worship under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So it's gathering, but not just to do what we want, under the lordship of Christ. And as we do so, it refreshes and nourishes us. Water is only as good as the soil that can hold it. Brothers and sisters, without soil, a lot of people go to their churches And the water of what's happening washes over them, and that's it. It's gone. But we want the water to be retained because of our good soil, and that's where growth happens. This is not it. If you come at 5 o'clock and hear me preach and sing a couple songs, you are massively missing out on what Christ has for you because all of it's going right through you. And then we wonder, why am I still depressed? Why am I still angry? Why can't I forgive? Why can't I seem to release myself from these addictions and from my needs to have these things? Because we need soil, we need water. So this isn't going to change, but I just need to clarify it to us. Water, of course, comes from Jesus, who said, I am the living water, or I'm giving living water. And then John 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that's what we're going to do and keep doing. We have been doing, we'll keep doing Every week at 5 o'clock, we're going to come to Jesus and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, here, we will continue this worship. And this worship will belong to the church for Christ. Worship belongs to the church for Christ. There's a huge movement today that reduces worship to a service to get unbelievers interested. Um, The motives are great. I'm fine with the motives, but where does the Christian get to worship and be built up? Now, I'm not saying that our church is not for unbelievers. I'm not saying that at all. I believe that as we worship Jesus genuinely and authentically, it can be attractive. But our goal, we don't gather and put on a big show to make people say, ooh, the Christian way is, I might consider that. We're not doing this for man. We're doing this to glorify our Father. And more importantly, we're doing this because our Father forms us in worship. Worship is not about humans coming to him and saying, yes, we are so in love with you. It's part of that. But more, that's how we get engaged. We love you, Lord. But when we do that, he then comes in our midst He's in our midst now, and he changes us, and he shapes us, and he breaks the things in our lives that don't need to be there. Worship is about coming underneath the Lordship of Christ and letting him pour himself into us, not letting us empty ourselves out to him. Now, both do happen, but I fear that we live in an age, because we live with the divine spark driving us, we think of worship primarily as me emptying my self-expression to God because he needs to remember who I am. He doesn't. 
We need to come to him and say, yes, this is, I'm needy. I need you. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And he comes and he's present powerfully and he fills us. And he says, yes, my brother, uh, my son, my daughter, I will take care of you. I will form you. I will give you my power. That's what I mean by we will continue to ensure worship belongs to the church for Christ. Um, Actually, there's a great book called You, um, You Are What You Love. And there the book details powerfully that what you worship shapes your desires. And my desires drive my decisions and deeds. So in other words, what I do in life is driven by what I desire and love and yearn for. And what I desire and love and yearn for is dictated to me by that which I worship. And so there's a huge emphasis in the idea that good, proper worship should form our desires for the kingdom of God, and then we will find our decisions and our values and our, uh, our actions and our behavior. Uh, I know I said the word value, but that's okay in this context. <laughs> um, we'll find all of that moving toward Christ's kingdom. So how are we going to drink Christ? Well, nothing new. 5 p.m. worship service. Now, when I say worship, I don't mean Richard and Sandy and, and the ensemble that they have with them for that week. I mean, uh, that is worship. But we often use worship to be part of one. Worship is the entire gathering of the body of Christ underneath the lordship of Christ. That's what worship is. This is worship. Prayer is worship. Singing is worship. So we're going to continue to worship. So uh, music, scripture, and communion. Those are our three cores to our worship service. Those, nothing's changing you come here at 5 o'clock next week, there will be one difference. I'm, I'm making an aim to preach shorter sermons. <laughs> you can applaud all you want. I am the first. I am the first to admit it's awful. Like Paul said, um, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The American Christian is yearning for shorter sermons and hates the long-winded preacher, of whom I am chief. That's... That's been, and I know tonight's no exception, so I got to work really hard next week. Um, carry, well, you can be, you can be rich. You, well, yeah, yeah, I can. All right. Um, I lost my, uh, oh yeah, so we're going to continue. So five, it will look the same next week at five o'clock, but here's what else we're going to do. This is, I understand that most people are going to hear this and say, that's optional. Well, it is. Being here is optional, too. Unless you're Christian, you really do need to be in fellowship. But anyways. <laughs> starting next week, write this down. or remember it really well. But starting next week, we are starting our worship service at 4 o'clock. What? Wait, we started at 6 o'clock last year. When COVID hit, we started at 5 o'clock. Now we're starting at 4 o'clock? Well, yes. We're going to start a prayer service at 4 o'clock which will bleed right into what we do at 5 o'clock. So, in other words, you forget and come at 5 o'clock tomorrow. Don't worry, you didn't, you didn't, well, you missed the prayer service, but you didn't miss the singing and the preaching and the communion. That's still at 5 o'clock. But because I've added more prayer into our service, and that's part of the reason why our services have gotten quite lengthy, and the fact that I realized, why am I following these time restraints that most churches follow when we don't have a service coming after this. That liberation wasn't helpful for you, but... uh, So we can pour a prayer service at four, pour our prayers into that, and then I can try to keep five o'clock like an hour. That's the goal. Um, The reason I'm also saying that is because I want children's ministry to happen at four o'clock. And there's two reasons for this. Uh, first, children's ministry is often, and I hear this, well, you hear it all everywhere, uh, often is seen as, oh yeah, we'll put the kids over there so we aren't distracted. It's actually not what's happening. Gio and Sonia work to pour into our children, to pour Christ into them. It is a ministry. And by putting at 4 o'clock, we'll recognize that the children have their ministry. Uh, But that will also then enable us to pray without distraction. But then at 5 o'clock, we're going to bring the children in. 
I don't think Christ wanted the kids out of the church's gathered worship. Now, I'm, I know that the, uh, Micah and Ashley and my wife and the Parkers maybe, like they're, they're kind of like, well, I don't know if I like that because it's hard to kind of keep track of your kids. But friends, kids are mightily adaptable. And if they're told this is how it is rather than we're kind of just waiting for children's ministry to start, they can adapt. Second, if I preach shorter and we keep it from five to six, kids can do that. They can absolutely do that. So um, that's my goal. And that's, so, what, so to recap, four o'clock, if you come at four o'clock, you will gather and you will hear me lead you in prayers like we did before worship and after worship, our praise prayers and our confessional prayers. I will be leading us in formed prayer. And what I mean by formed prayers, these are prayers that come right out of the Bible. We're praying scripture, and occasionally we will add a prayer from church tradition. And the reason these are good is because they've survived 2,000 years, and they're apparently worth praying. So we will be praying form prayer, which will then give way to a psalm, a devotional teaching on a psalm, like 15-minute psalm. Because that way, we want to keep going through the psalms and learn the language of prayer and praise. It was invaluable what we've been doing in the psalms up to this moment. We will keep that going at 4 o'clock. After the psalm, we will then have free prayer. So that's, a, that's not form prayer. That's where the prayers of the people, the prayers that are on our hearts, we offer them up. We take the prayer cards, which are back there, by the way, and you should fill them out. We'll take these prayer cards, and as a fellowship, we will pray for the needs on these cards. Whatever comes to you in the gathering, we will pray for those things. We will, supp- we will pour our supplications out before Christ. And then at the, when that is done, the worship team will begin singing. Just right, they'll just right there, just amen, and they'll be singing. We'll actually end with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then the worship team will take off at the first song, and we'll keep going. That'll be, I hope, slightly before 5 o'clock, actually, that worship will begin. So as people come at 5, we're coming into a house that has already been prayed in and is already singing. It's so awkward when you come into a quiet room and everyone's sitting there waiting isn't it? We didn't, we didn't know that when we had dinner every week and we would just like eat and talk and, and come and we had to like drag people back in here like, hey, dinner's over. Um, but once COVID hit and we stopped having dinners, it was like this, oh, this is weird. Like we're just waiting. It's, it's five. We're starting and there's like three people here. And then they, you know, they trickle in as, as worship's going. But um, anyways, I just, I just had to share that little thought I had about it'd be cool to be coming into a room prayed for and already singing. Okay, so then that's water. So soil, water, finally light. Light. This is the last and most important component of growth. You absolutely need soil or the water means nothing. The soil needs to have water. And then when the plant begins to have growth, it must photosynthesize. We must receive the light of Christ but something else happens as we do. So light is the presence of Christ we receive in fellowship and produce through Christ-likeness. Please catch that. Light is something that we receive, and as we receive it, and we're receiving it in fellowship, yes, you can do your devotions and receive Christ's presence, We receive Christ's presence as we sit here at the five o'clock worship and in prayer. But in fellowship is when Christ's presence is enhanced. And it's something modern Christianity is forgetting. And I pray that the coronavirus' online church versions does not sap the presence of Christ from our midst as we gather. It can be all too easy for too many people to decide that church is, I got my sermon, I talked to one or two Christians during the week, I've got fellowship. Oh, Lord have mercy. Now, light is the presence of Christ we receive in fellowship, but then as we receive it, we will then become producers of it. This comes from Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus told us, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as we fellowship and we receive the light of Christ, we will also be building each other up unto good works so that the world will see the light. That's what Jesus said. He was unashamed of saying, hey, my Christians, do good works. I think at some point we thought, oh, no, but we're saved by faith through grace, not of works. So we got shy about works. Friends, works are our evangelism. 
And we need these. It's Christ-likeness is what our good works are. Our good works are not trying to gain Christ's favor. Our good works are building Christ-likeness into us. That's what we're aiming for. So, <clears throat> we, this is what we're going to do. What, this is what light, this is, our, this is our goal. We will form souls in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's it. We'll form souls in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And you cannot do that without fellowship. Because I can't become like Christ. I cannot check my anger, my annoyance, my frustration, my humility before others if I'm not with others. I am a saint when I'm alone. And I'm not actually growing when I'm alone. We grow in community and fellowship. And so we will grow in the likeness of Christ. Now, I say form souls because the popular version, moralistic therapeutic deism, is a church that is catering to the self. We want to give people what they like. We want to make them feel happy about themselves. Of course, goodness, Lord knows we need to feel good about ourselves every now and then. I don't mean a faith where we beat each other up all the time. But our mission is not to just, everyone come in, you're doing great, you're happy, and I'm going to tell you five ways to have the best new year of your life. Hey, you know what? Receive some of that. But that is not our aim in gathering. It's to form souls, and we have to go deeper than how we feel if we're going to form our souls. Um, So we do not exist to cater ourselves. We are not consumers of church culture, and we are... We are partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter 1.4. We are partakers of the divine nature. I did not say, the Bible does not say, we become the divine nature. We are partakers in the divine nature. As Christ modeled for us in his incarnation, perfectly human, perfectly God, we can become partakers, not become God, oh, Lord, forgive that thought, but become like God. Be partakers in his nature. That's what it means to form a soul. Um, by the way, don't worry, we're, we're nearly done. Um, next week, I don't know if you know this, but um, the church is historically celebrated. Sorry, next week, it's Epiphany. I don't like the word Epiphany. It sounds weird. It sounds Catholic. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, in a mean way at all. It just, it just doesn't resonate with me. Um, until I realized that the church has also historically used a word called theophany. And all these words mean is it's the manifestation of God. Um, So the Catholic Church has done that with the three wise men coming on January 6th. And so the three wise men, oh, Jesus is manifested to the world. Um, Other churches have done, actually, um, outside the Catholic Church, have done uh, theophany is the baptism of Christ, where the Father says, this is my Son, and the Son is seen there, and the Spirit comes upon him, that the Trinity is revealed to the world on that day. And so next week, we're, gonna, we're actually going to look at the baptism of Jesus, and for the six weeks of the season of theophany, epiphany if you'd rather, um, we're just going to look at a series of messages in the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the baptism, um, about being partakers of the divine nature that God would be manifest in us. That's the goal. So I'm saying this ahead of time, so that one, you can read that ahead of time, but two, um, so, you know, I'm not abandoning going through the Bible in a systematic way. Uh, We're just going to hit a season where I'm going to go through a series, and then we're going to do one more series, and then we'll resume. We'll pick up Proverbs. That's where we left off. We'll pick up Proverbs, and we'll keep plowing through the Bible. But just so you know, we'll go through a couple series for a few weeks here first. Um, okay, so how then, okay, so fine, let's close up light. How will we receive and reflect the light of Christ? How are we going to do this? Three ways. First, virtue. Yep, we're going to, that's next week. Starting next week for six weeks, we're going to look at virtue, the way Jesus teaches it. It's about good deeds, and it's about becoming good deeds. It's not just about doing good stuff. Any Joe can do ping pong, get the ping pong ball over the table once, but I can't become a good player just by doing it once, right? I gotta actually have that skill in me. It's about getting virtue inside us. Virtue is God likeness, getting that inside us. So virtue is one of the ways we're gonna shine light. Second is through fellowship. We talked about that. If you wanna look up 1 John 1 7, he says that um, when we are in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. 
That's a fellowship. So um, a monthly meal. Our meals will return. Um, not every week. It's not economically sustainable with the conference center shut down. And it's also probably not wise that we're going to do that every week with the coronavirus still in existence. But I would like to see a monthly meal, something we can look forward to um, at the end of each month, a meal. And I would like to start that, Lord willing, uh, at the end of January. And that meal will be at 6 o'clock. So if you want to be super soil water light, then come at 4 and pray. At 5, we will worship. And at 6, we will eat. That, that last Sunday of the month. Um, also, home, home studies and meals. Of course, this might, you know, this might be more in the future with COVID and stuff, but getting the fellowship beyond gathering on Sunday and into each other's lives. I need help, though. It's partly why I'm sharing all this with you guys is I'm just one person who says, this is what the Bible shows us, but I'm a terrible organizer. Brit and my wife knows, and some of you who possibly figured out by now i'm a hermit largely who happens to be forced to be in public because christ said you are a pastor um and then third says virtue fellowship third is missional engagement and uh michael beavers has given us a lot of missional ideas that's not just an add-on i mean we introduced that a while ago but we need to see that as really a big part of what it means to be light and missional just means being a, it's, it's, it's like missions, but it's for laymen like, like us that aren't full-time missionaries. It's being missional in our day-to-day interactions. And so what this will look like is sponsorship. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> for as much of church history as I've seen, there was a sponsor who invited a neighbor, a friend, who began to get curious about their way of life, Not because they were preaching at them, but because they were living the way of Christ. And they said, hey, why don't you go through soil? That's not what you would call it, of course. But why don't you get trained in the way of Christ? And the sponsor would be the one training them until they were ready to commit their life to Christ. And they'd be baptized all at once on Easter. Oh, my Lord. I would love to see on Easter... Uh, maybe that's only a couple months away, but uh, next Easter, would that not be amazing if we had a handful of baptisms all at once celebrated on the day of the Lord's resurrection? May the Lord grant that to us as we live missionally and seek one person that we can become a sponsor or a mentor or an elder to, to just take them through the life of Christ. Um, So that's one of my goals is, I would like us to develop, like, soil isn't just the idea that we have this foundational Christianity, but there's actually a place where we practice that, where we get the way of Christ ingrained in us. We are together, I don't want to call it a class, because that always makes people think of, there's a lecturer and we sit here. Um, But actually, more like an interactive school where we get our hands dirty together. And man, wouldn't that be an easy place to bring someone who's curious about the faith that doesn't want to get preached at or feel weird and, I don't know, just a a much smaller environment? Anyways, all this to come. So, um, conclusion. Uh, Secularism threatens to erode the power of Christianity from within. So we need good soil that retains Christ's living water and grows fruit and receives and reflects the light his light. (laughs) So let's pray.